Hey folks, shared here. We've got Doctrine Man on the podcast today. Steve Leonard and his co-editor, co-author John Klug join host John Frerichs to discuss their new Ficken compilation, To Boldly Go. This episode was edited and produced by Keegan Ingersoll. We just launched the call for submissions for the Simsec Forum for Authors and Readers over at the main website. There was a particular piece that you enjoyed this year. Nominate it, and if it gets enough votes, you can hear the author present his or her work. We've also officially put out our call for articles for the end-of-year fiction contest, so go over to simsec.org for full details. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Guten Tag, shipmates, and welcome back. Today, we will dive into an exciting new book that explores leadership, strategy, and conflict in the 21st century and beyond through a series of short fictional intelligence pieces written by several different authors. Joining us today are two of the editors and authors of a few of the stories, John Klug and Stephen Leonard, aka Dr. Man. John and Steve, can you both please give a brief personal introduction and how you two came together to edit a book together? Well, I guess I'll, I'll jump in here first. So for, for anybody who asks, uh, I'm a faculty member at the University of Kansas, have been since I retired from the Army in uh, 2015 after a 28-year career. John and I have been friends for years, and we have tossed around project ideas for just about as long as I can remember. And uh, this was one that uh, kind of floated around. It was initially suggested by Mick Ryan, who wrote the foreword and contributed chapter to the book. And uh, Mick, being an Australian two-star, probably has more on his plate than most people I know. So it was easier for us to pick up the ball and run with this project and bounce it around and come up with some ideas. And then, uh, as I like to say, build the dream team uh, to make everything come to fruition. So that's, that's my side of it. Yeah, I'm John Klug. Uh, I'm at the Army War College, an assistant professor, going to school as a PhD candidate when uh, Steve brought up the idea of uh, this particular project. And uh, given our long history together and, and talks about science fiction, it just made uh, made perfect sense. And I guess what I brought in, apart from my own interest in science fiction, is a lot of interest in uh, military and naval history. So I enjoyed that. And my uh, time as an Army strategist, we both have served in, in that role, I think, um, brought a unique perspective and and we built a large uh coalition really to uh to write this book which was a lot of fun and, and very interesting but it's, uh that's me in a nutshell i guess gentlemen thank you the book today that we will discuss is titled to boldly go leadership strategy and conflict in the 21st century and beyond and will be released to the public on 3 september 2021 the book is a riveting collection of short stories that i would best characterize as fictional intelligence pieces that challenge your perception of both the present and the future. Before we begin, I'll remind the listeners that all opinions expressed are our own and not reflective of any institutions with which we might otherwise be associated. Gentlemen, as you mentioned during the introduction, you did collect an impressive group of authors to contribute to the book. August Cole, Mick Cook, Max Brooks, uh, and ML Cavanaugh, to name just a few. Why did you choose fictional intelligence to address leadership strategy and future conflict? Let me jump on this one. We had explored this uh, a couple of times previously. Uh, I was part of the project with Max and uh, Matt Cavanaugh with Strategy Strikes Back, 
which used Star Wars as the backdrop to discuss many of these same issues. And then we followed that up with uh, Winning Westeros, which used Game of Thrones to do the same kind of thing. But we felt like that there was a lot more left to, uh, to discuss. And science fiction provides this just rich tapestry of ideas. And this is one that I know John can expound on. But there's so much there to use uh, in terms of metaphorical content to explore things that we deal with on a daily basis. Obviously, whether it was leadership, whether it's conflict, whether ideas of uh, diversity, to explore toxic leadership, all those things, you find all that in science fiction. And a lot of times science fiction deals with it in a way that we can relate better. And, and that's really what uh, the power of the medium that you have something that's really, uh, really gives a good example of a, of a, of a subject that you want to discuss, but in a fictional sense, and people, more people relate to it. So like, if, if, if you talk about, well, here's how something works in the Marine Corps, and unless somebody's really attuned and familiar with the core and how things work, they might not get it. But if you take that same topic and say, let's talk about the Kobayashi Maru and how it affects planning and preparation. And then everybody will say, hey, wait, a minute. I've seen that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you can pull in more people that can relate to the subject and then expand the discussion group per se. So that was one of the ideas behind this book was just open the aperture to science fiction broadly so we could have more people with a, a broader view of science fiction to, to introduce topics of discussion. Yeah, I, I think it's fundamentally it's about tapping into imagination. It, it's being able to explore strategy and leadership and, and conflict from, from different perspectives. And I, I think Steve covered that very well. Imagining what the profession of arms will be like in the future uh, is a way to, to think about it today and think about how do we get from today towards where we want to be uh, for tomorrow. And, and there's, there's so many examples um, in the past of people using the future uh, to, to think about these things. I mean, everything from War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, imagining what conflict would be like and, and how that would inform things. I, again, I, a World War II historian, in a lot of ways, and there's a great example of this, 1925, uh, a gentleman named Hector Bywater, uh, he's a journalist and commentator on uh, things naval, I guess I would say, and he wrote The Great War in the Pacific, and it was, quote unquote, a history, right, a history of a war between the United States and Japan in 1931 to 1933, and he got a lot of things right, so to speak. So it, it's just a, a, another example of how we can think about the future to inform what we're trying to do today. John brings up a really good point too, that you mentioned the use of fictional intelligence and, and getting it right. Uh, if Everybody here has probably read Tom Clancy and that was when Tom Clancy first published. Uh, that was one of the things that struck me was he got so much right. And yeah, he had some research, and later on, he had a lot of help, but that's what always made uh, fictional intelligence so much fun, was you can just be stabbing out there in the dark, and you get some things right, and that makes your writing so much more interesting, and so when you get into the science fiction world, there's so much that 
we like people like to talk about Star Trek in the 60s predicting so much of the technology that we have today. Uh, it makes those kinds of things more fun, more interesting, more compelling to audiences. So, so that's a, it's an obvious medium to lean on. Those elements of uh, reality definitely help pull and I think, you know, spawn that imagination that, that John mentioned. You know, I, I think back of, of books growing up, you know, as I came through the military, like Starship Troopers and Ender's Game and the Forever War, and they, they all have some element of truth uh, that they're based in. They also allow that imagination to, to take place. What were the challenges and the rewards with working with 30 different authors, including yourselves, who contributed to the final book? John's laughing. So you ever see that uh, that commercial that uh, everybody's seen the commercial about uh, the cat herders? That's that's the that's the challenge of dealing with 30 people, because all of a sudden you're dealing with 30 people with 30 different lives, 30 different sets of priorities, 30 different competing agendas and trying to get everybody herded and pointed in the right direction, same direction on the same timeline, uh, that, that, that'll keep you up late at night. Uh, but it's important to be able to do so because, you know, John and I and Mick, the three of us probably could have written this whole thing ourselves, but then you just don't open the aperture enough. So the opportunity that comes with this is being able to get more voices involved in a broader perspective bring in more examples of, of fiction that we haven't considered, and you get a much richer, uh, I think you get a much better po- uh, product in the end. Yeah, uh, just just to pile on, I mean, <laughs> 30 different authors, this is, this is an eclectic bunch. Now, given the circumstances that we've all been dealing with for the past two years, we never got everyone in one room, but I'm sure it would have been high adventure uh, with, with the 30 authors that we had, just, just sit down and chat. But more to the point, Steve mentioned different perspectives. All these folks have different experiences. So they, of course, like anyone, are leveraging the things that they have done in their personal interests to tell a story, to, to tell a story about the future using uh, science fiction and, and trying to draw lessons. So the richness involved in that. And again, it was a coalition operation. I mentioned that earlier. I'm sure uh, we, we inadvertently applied a lot of coalition doctrine uh, in our approach to get this done. Um, herding kittens or uh, as some would say, running the zoo with the cages open. Well, it's a shame that the, the group of the authors never got uh, the opportunity to all come together, but I'm sure that's a, a convention maybe you guys can host in a uh, COVID-free world sometime soon that many people would sign up for. I think the book offers lessons for anyone inside or outside the military, and I would say from a, a private to a general or flag officer, uh, but who was your intended audience and how did you shape, how did this shape your final product? So that's a great question. Uh, probably more so because I think John and I probably taught audience uh, even before we really got too deep into content and before we even talked to authors. And we were in the early stages of writing our very first book proposal, which we honestly never finished. And that subject came up. What's our intended audience? And it's like, well, we don't want to focus just on the military because it, that's easily done, but it also limits the limits the the appeal of a book. And, you, and if you're going to talk about book proposals, and you're going to talk to a publisher out of the blue, which we did, you want to be able to pitch a product that has as much broad appeal as possible. And so, how do we how do we expand that appeal? And so, 
uh, okay, let's not just write about conflict. Let's write about leadership. Let's write about different areas because then you can expand from just the military to business as well. And so then all of a sudden you can address business leaders and business professionals. And then let's get, as we dig into the subject matter and you start talking science fiction, then you open up a third audience, uh, science fiction fans who who might actually be really interested to see how these, how their favorite uh, genre uh, can be applied in different areas. And so when we sat down and finally pitched it, uh, I was very happy. And I know John was too, is we didn't even finish the proposal. We had a draft proposal and we had acceptance by a publisher before we even got to a final, uh, a final written product uh, as far as the proposal was concerned. And then we were scrambling because, oh, you know, we really don't have our collective, uh, uh, oh boy, how do you say this? We don't have our collective shit together uh, at this point. And we're scrambling to say, okay, well, we got a publisher, but we're not there yet. Oh, it's okay. Get there kind of thing. So so our intended audience was fairly broad. We wanted to hit military. We wanted to hit business and other professionals. And we wanted to be able to hit the general uh science fiction fan base which gives you enough appeal that we would hope would make this sell well uh when it hits the hits bookshelves yeah i think steve you know is spot on on this one we just wanted this to be very broad and 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 make sure that at least a couple chapters would resonate with uh all those different audiences that steve mentioned that there'd be something uh, for everybody, and and you wouldn't have to necessarily be uh, a a diehard science fiction fan, but you know a casual science fiction fan, meaning someone who's just seen you know a couple of the Star Wars movies and and enjoyed them just as as, as entertainment, but uh, it's not going to argue about you know how long a, a womp rat is uh, that they were shooting with their T19s or whatever. Um, or the the other thing, the Big Bang Theory, as those examples, like Sheldon, who will argue with you over the f- finest points of, of whatever you're talking about and whatever genre you want. We wanted this to be accessible and interesting and fun. I believe you guys certainly, certainly accomplished that. I want to pivot, and I want to explore one of the stories that the two of you co-wrote. It was entitled, Yours is the Superior, Experience, Intellect, and the Battle of the Mutara Nebula. As a, as a kid, I grew up watching Star Wars and Star Trek with my father, and I, and I appreciated the extension of the storyline. Without spoiling the ending, what was the story about, and how was it writing and editing the story together? Well, I guess I, I got to lead off uh, on this one, um, but I got to digress before I even get into it. I love movie quotes, so it, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's science fiction, comedy. Uh, you name it, Blues Brothers, Star Wars, Jaws, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Steve's probably thinking about all the times he's had to listen to my, my bad quotes, in, including Quint's soliloquy. Yeah, hey, woo. <laughs> and uh, so, but Khan, I think, is one of the most quotable villains of all time. And, and one of the things that we get into a bit in this chapter, and, and uh, I get into later in another one, is uh, why he's such a great character, why he's such a, a great villain. Uh, the greatest movies or stories have a great antagonist. Um, if you look at Star Wars, the original trilogy, it's about the redemption of, of Darth Vader. If you're talking about Star Trek, uh, 
if you look at Khan, he's he's a great, colorful uh, character. And again, starting off the, the chapter with, there she is. You know, the whole movie is full of great quotes, but the Battle of Matara Nebula has a, a, a lot of great ones from not only Ricardo Montalban playing Khan, but uh, Kirk and Spock uh, and Savick. So I, I think that and the allusions to some of the other great works, I think, drew me to this particular character and then uh, this chapter. So if you talk about uh, Moby Dick, if you talk about uh, Milton, if you talk about Shakespeare, all those things uh, drew me uh, to this chapter. So, Steve, any thoughts? So, uh, you know, obviously, the content of this chapter, it's, it's, it's right up front. It's, and it was even alluded to fairly clearly by Spock in the movie when he talks about, you know, this is the battle between experience and intelligence. And this is something that John and I, and a lot of us, not just John and I, but a lot of us have debated over the years, the limitations of intelligence when you have, when you put it up against experience. And so th this is the, this is the prototypical fight um, between those two, but there's so much more to this. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this is uh, the discussion that Star Trek II in general is a nod to naval history. And and if you watch the movie closely, there are there are there's so much, so many naval references within that film, and the Battle of the Mutara Nebula was intended from the beginning to uh, to replicate uh, a, a naval battle uh, during the era of sail, and and that's why you use uh, the Mutara Nebula so you can cloud the vessels so it's. You know, you don't have uh, sensors. You can't see each other. It's supposed to replicate a classic naval battle at sea, and and it does so so well. Um, other than you know the you know Z minus ten thousand meters, uh, yeah. Uh, but still, the idea is there. Uh, it just the, that set piece is just a wonderful uh, backdrop to talk about a subject like experience, vice intelligence, and and I can tell you that. Not only does it spur that conversation, John and I just had this the same discussion on a separate topic, uh, God, not what, two days ago, uh, in a phone conversation where we're both doing our favorite Stadler and Wardoff, uh, Waldorf over somebody who had written an article who got it so wrong. And, and the, end, the end of the conversation was the reason why the author got this wrong was because they, they're, they're well-studied but have zero experience in the subject matter that they're writing about. So they, you know, they just lack that, that broader understanding of how things work, which, oh, by the way, is one of, that's my favorite line from the Battle of the Mutara Nebula where Spock turns around, or was it Spock or Kirk? Oh, yes, Kirk, when he turns around to Savick and says, on a starship, you have to know how things work. And and that was our, our topic too. It's like, okay, that's that's a big that's a big hallmark, uh, a calling point within that battle is, you know, experience lets you know how things work. And if you don't know how things work, then it's really hard to fight that battle. Yeah, if, if I could just jump back in, the other thing for the Matara Nebula that 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 I think it underscores is you can you can offset teams offset experience 
and knowledge. So what I mean by that is, is the classic team of Spock and Kirk working together uh, to defeat uh, Khan. So uh, again, they're leveraging different experiences, different abilities, different capacities, and together that makes them stronger than Khan, who at that point uh, would not listen to anyone else. Um, his his right arm, Joachim, uh, wouldn't listen to him at, at that point, really. It was, uh, he's blinded by the need for revenge and without going do, too down, uh, too far down that road. But again, the, the team offsetting the genius. Uh, we could talk about Napoleon here and the advent of uh, general staffs to counter Napoleon's genius where the staffs are going to leverage not only the a commander's abilities, but all of the staff's abilities. Gentlemen, the, the tension between intellect and experience is certainly something that I think we, we discuss a lot within the military uh, and is certainly applicable to the maritime domain. So I appreciate that background and I look forward to getting back and rereading the chapter uh, based on all the additional references uh, that I think I must have missed the first time around. Now I'll put you both on the spot. Uh, in the final version of the book, which story did you most relate to and why? I'll, I'll lead off on, on this one first. And, and I very much liked August Cole's piece on uh, the space battleship Yamato and uh, its captain, uh, Captain Avatar. And there's, there's a lot of uh, angles to this. I think part of it, I should probably say up front, is nostalgia. So, so part of, I think, each of these chapters, why an author ch chooses to write on something. I think there's a bit of nostalgia in, in uh, you know, uh, I don't know about Steve, but the first movie I ever saw was Star Trek in, in, in 1977. And then I think the next two were uh, Superman and then Star Trek, the motion picture. But uh, August chapter is, is based on um, an anime, really the first anime that made it to the United States it called Star Blazers. And that came out in the uh, late 70s here. And fundamentally, it's it's uh, an allegory uh, in a lot of ways. It, as a Japanese cartoon, it's an allegory for World War II, where the Earth is being attacked by aliens and, and getting uh, pummeled from uh, planet bombs and, and having radiation destroying the planet and, and forces people to live underground. And the one hope that they have is to send off the space battle cruiser Yamato on a year-long mission to a distant planet to get a machine that would essentially stop the radiation. So August took a, a very interesting approach with it. He kind of laid out uh, a little bit of background. And then for the rest of the chapter, he put it in the form of a letter. And he had some really interesting uh, main points within that letter. I think that someone thinking about uh, naval conflict, military conflict, leadership, especially leadership, uh, could draw from that chapter for today. So that's that's the one that that spoke to me a lot, partly uh, for what he's saying, but also partly for nostalgic reasons. I'll flip the script on you just a little bit because you know, we could, we could talk all day long about our favorite chapters and I don't like to single out a favorite chapter because honestly, there were so many that I, that as we went through editing that we would read and say, oh my God, now I got to go watch the expanse all over again. Or, you know, I, I need to go pull up Asimov and I need to check this reference because this is absolutely fascinating. But for me, I want, I want to talk about the most timely article 
So I was explaining to somebody a week or so ago that uh, this thing was a labor of love during a time of COVID, right? So we're stuck in the middle of a pandemic, uh, working from home, some of us wearing pants, some of us not. And what, uh, what struck me as the, as the chapters came in was uh, one from uh, Craig and Steve Whiteside that deals with The Stand, the Stephen King novel. And if you remember The Stand, it dealt with uh, basically a man-made pandemic. And, and what came out of that chapter was absolutely fascinating reading because it's, you know, you're reading this in the midst of a pandemic. And really the article, uh, excuse me, the chapter is about what we learned from that experience in The Stand. And it couldn't be more timely. You know, and, and it, this book is going to come out probably when we're at the peak of the Delta variant and, and, you know, hospitals are overrun and it will be just as relevant today as when the, the first draft uh, crossed our desks in what, November, October of last year, you know, uh, before we had hit the first peak of, of, uh, of COVID-19. And so that chapter you know, it may not be as relevant two years from now, but I'll tell you what, it's a good read, it's a smart read, and it's a creepy read, and all three of those combine for it's worthwhile to take a look, uh, and then to go watch the stand or go read the book again, it's a, it's a, you know, it's kind of a wake-up call, and that made it uh, an especially timely chapter. Steve, I'm glad I'm not the only one uh, who is having to go back and reference and try to dig back into some of the resources. I received a review copy when I was on a on temporary duty assignment. And I, I found myself sitting in a hotel room continuously going back to my computer and trying to pull up some of the references, trying to make sure I was kind of capturing or catching everything, uh, but really an enjoyable read. Gentlemen, for both of you, before we wrap, where can listeners connect with you guys on social media and what are you guys working on next? So I'll hit, I'll hit this one. Social media is pretty easy. You can find me up on LinkedIn, you know, there's only one of me, uh, the old man with the you know, typical university profile picture. Or you can find me at Dr. Man on Facebook uh, or Twitter or Instagram, all three. I'm up and running. What we're working on next is, well, we've got some ideas bouncing around that we really don't want to talk too much about because, you know, we don't have, we'll just we'll just say that we have another big project in the works that we hope to have publish about this time two years from now, assuming that the publisher will approve it. Yeah, I, I, saying more than that is kind of, you know, I don't want to tip the hat too much because we're too early in the process. But uh, like I said, John and I, we've been working our schemes slash projects for so long that there's always another one in the works. And so this one, we don't even have the dust blown off the bookshelves to put this book on the shelves when we're already starting to plan for the next one. And if that one doesn't come through, we'll figure something else out, but there's always something going. It's just the nature of who we are and, and how we think. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that, John. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, only John Klug, J-O-N-K-L-U-G on LinkedIn, and then uh, at strategy underscore troll uh, on Twitter. Uh, that's about it. And, and again, Steve mentioned, uh, we're, we're thinking about another project, but uh, I've got an albatross that's a dissertation that I need to finish. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I got scuffed up pretty bad by a friend of ours for distracting John for over a year while he was supposed to be dissertating. And uh, that was one of our, our fellow contributors, uh, Francis Park, who 
gave me a, sent me a note and he said, hey, you got to stop distracting John. He has to write that dissertation while he can. And, you know, these projects are great, but you're keeping him from doing what's important. And I think I said something nasty to him, like you ought to be a crayon eating Marine while you have the opportunity. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, it, point well taken. So we're, as we think about that next project, we're also thinking about ways to keep John from being distracted. So he finishes that dissertation. So, uh, you know, then, then we can have unfettered access to, uh, to my favorite buddy out there. Well, John, uh, or AKA Strategy Troll, now I'm gonna have to look you up. Uh, I wish you the best of luck on your dissertation and, and look forward to seeing the back end of it. And Steve, AKA Dr. Man, uh, look forward to seeing what that project does come uh, out and develops into the future. Uh, to both of you, my sincere appreciation for coming on the podcast today to discuss your book and your work. To the listeners, highly recommend you check out their book, To Boldly Go, Leadership, Strategy, and Conflict in the 21st Century and Beyond. Thank you for listening, and until next time, guten tag.